Well, good morning. It is wonderful to be with you all this morning. Great to sing with you and great to be able to gather together and share fellowship with all of you. My name is Pastor Ian. If you don't know me, uh, I'm one of the associate pastors here. I'm not normally the one who is uh, up here bringing the word to you, but Pastor Mark is away once again uh, this week, and so I'm glad for this opportunity to open the scriptures together. Take your Bibles, if you have them with you, turn with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we will pick up our series through this letter of Paul's in just a moment. This is a little bit of a shorter passage this week, and so what I'd like to do is just read it through once for us, although I'm sure you've been reading and engaging with it this week as well. So we'll read it through one time. And then I'll pray for us and uh, dedicate the rest of our time to the Lord. And then we'll dive in and explore this text a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. Lord, we're grateful for this time that you've given for us to be together this morning. We're grateful for the gift of your word and specifically for uh, the gift of this letter that you have uh, inspired and the Apostle Paul has written uh, for our benefit and for our good. And so as we uh, open that up and examine that this morning, we pray that your spirit would give us wisdom, that we'd have insight, uh, so that we can know the ways in which uh, this text must be modifying and changing our lives and conforming us into the image of Jesus. And we pray that you'd do that for us by your spirit this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we found our place here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's take a moment and just remind ourselves a little bit of where we've come from and the context that surrounds this passage. Back at the end of chapter 8, Paul wrote to the Corinthians about this collection that he was taking up for the churches in Jerusalem, and most of that passage was about Paul demonstrating the integrity of him and his team and explaining a little bit about how the collection would be done and, and who would be involved, the individual people. And we mentioned a couple of other New Testament passages that helped us shed a little bit of light on why this collection was so significant for Paul and the Jerusalem churches as well. This week, our topic is still the same. We're still talking about the collection, but the focus of this passage is now on Paul's confidence in the Corinthians' participation in the project. Paul encourages them to be prepared when the team arrives to collect their gift. This passage begins in verse 1 of chapter 9 with a little bit of an odd statement. You can look at verse 1 with me. Paul says, now it is superfluous. By the way, it's okay sometimes to pause and chuckle at our English Bible translations. Superfluous? 
Great word, great word. Thank you to the ESV for that one. It is superfluous. I think the NIV has something like, I have no need to write to you. That would be a lot more simple to say in English. It is superfluous. We'll stick with the ESV. For me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. This is odd because Paul spent all of chapter 8, and he's going to continue in chapter 9 to write to them about the collection of the ministry for the saints. He's doing this for effect, I think. He's basically saying, I don't need to remind you, but... And then he fills in the blanks. So we talked about this last week. The Corinthians heard about this project from Paul over a year ago. They were excited to participate in it at that point in time when they initially heard about it. And Paul's initial instructions to them are actually found at the end of 1 Corinthians, which would have been written probably about a year or so before this letter of 2 Corinthians. Here's what Paul said at the end of 1 Corinthians about the same collection. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This was Paul's initial plan. This is what he had originally wanted to do. But we know from this letter of 2 Corinthians that that plan has been derailed by some, some changes in travel plans. But this is why Paul says to the Corinthians here that they should be ready for this collection uh, already when the team arrives. So Paul says in verse 2, he knows about their readiness, as we mentioned already last week. He's also been boasting about their readiness to the churches in Macedonia. In this specific section of text and really the broader context of chapter 9 as well, there are a number of things that could be deserving of our attention, but I primarily want to focus on just one of them this morning. And that is specifically the way that the Apostle Paul interacts with the Corinthians. We mentioned last week that money can be sometimes a little bit of a difficult topic, especially if you're asking people to give theirs up for one reason or another. Lots of relationships can be damaged over, over issues like money. So Paul has to handle this a little bit carefully, and he does that in a couple of ways. He's not aggressive about pursuing the church to, to give and participate in this project, He's not aggressive about it, but he does need to be bold in some ways. One commentator that I ran across this week said this. He said, most people subconsciously employ a mental air defense system to deflect any appeals for money that their radar screen picks up. So Paul has to figure out a way to break through this kind of defense system and convince them that this collection is worth their time and worth their resources. I think it's important to understand exactly how it is that Paul goes about doing that. Let's first take a moment and just note what Paul does not do. He does not go to them and demand that they participate. He does not require them to do anything about this. He does not try to twist their arm. He does not force them. He doesn't try to manipulate them or coerce them into donating. He doesn't use any sort of slick fundraising method to get this done. In fact, he actually goes out of his way to make sure that the Corinthians know that he's not doing that. 
We saw last week that Paul sends a strategic group of people to receive this offering. Titus, who they have a good relationship with, the representative of the churches of Macedonia, a group of churches that's already contributed to this project, and then another trustworthy companion of Paul's, who is known for his, his gospel preaching. We focused last week on the way in which that demonstrates Paul's integrity and that he's not benefiting from this collection himself in any way. But this also, I think, shows the Corinthians that he does not want them to be pressured into, into contributing. In fact, we see here in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 9 that Paul is sending that group of three individuals, at least, ahead of him to receive the offering. And potentially, some others from Macedonia will come with him to Corinth afterward. We saw also in 1 Corinthians 16, which we just looked at a moment ago, when Paul was asking them to give initially and had presented them with his instructions for the offering, he wanted to make sure that they were contributing before he got there, before he arrived. He said, hey, make sure each week you take up a collection so that you won't have to be collecting anything when I get there. He gives the same instruction in this chapter, in chapter 9. You can look at verse 5 here. Paul says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. So Paul himself is not going to be passing around the offering plate at this church He's not going to know anything about who has contributed what to this project. That's not the important part. The important part is that they give generously out of a love for their siblings in need in Jerusalem. So Paul has made sure that the Corinthians are uh, confident. He's made sure that they know about his confidence in them and that their confidence that he and the team can handle the money well and, and in that way, the participation of the Corinthians wouldn't be out of any sort of manipulation or pressure or anything like that. This is a willing gift that they provide. But yet, Paul still, despite that, also finds a way to encourage them and motivate them to contribute. I think he does that in three ways, specifically, that are significant from this passage. The first one is that he expresses his confidence in the Corinthians, Paul's mentioned this idea of confidence three times in the last three chapters. Back at the end of chapter 7, when he's talking about the good report that he received from Titus about them, he writes, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Then in last week's passage, we saw that Paul describes that third member of the traveling team as somebody who has great confidence in the Corinthians as well. Now here, in verse 4 of chapter 9, he once again mentions his confidence in the Corinthians. Now, that's a little bit of a funny way of encouraging someone to do something, but I think it's significant. Rather than commanding them or telling them to be generous, he simply tells them that he is confident in them. I think we have a lot to learn from the way that Paul thinks here. Sometimes I think we Assume that when we first place our faith in Jesus, we begin this journey of, of sanctification, and we start out as, as people who don't know anything about the fruits of the Spirit, but we know that God has commanded us to do certain things or to not do other things, and we believe in Jesus, and we want to love him, and we want to follow him, and so 
over time, we grow in the ability to do those things by the power of the Spirit. And there's a lot of truth in everything that I just said. There's a lot of truth in it. But Paul's thinking is just slightly, slightly different here. If we want to take love as an example, it's not the case that we grow in love by deciding to love other people. It's not simply a matter of obedience. It's a matter of identity. We love other people because God has renewed us into a people who love one another. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 5 of this letter. Famously, in verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when God makes us new, it's not that we only have new commands and new instructions to follow. We have a new identity. We are now a people in whom and among whom God is producing the fruit of the Spirit in. We are not called to be something that we are not. We are not called to live into an identity of, of, of uh, obedience and simply rule following. We are called into the identity that God has formed in us, and that is a people who are, who are in Christ. So when God calls this people to himself, the primary question is not, whether these people will do what he says, although that's important, the primary question is whether they will be who he has created them to be. Several months ago now, uh, John Glovker, one of our elders, uh, approached us as a pastoral staff and asked us to put together just a short list of a couple of books that had really uh, positively impacted us and that we've uh, enjoyed and benefited from. And he collected that list and, and got a couple copies of those books, and they sit out in the fireside room in the back on a shelf in there, and those are available for you to check out with the little notebook that's next to them. But one of those books that's out there and available was recommended by, by Pastor Jonathan, and it's a real classic by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. If you've not read that book, I would highly encourage you to grab a copy of that and read through it. But in that book, Lewis says this, which I think is really helpful. He says, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. For the Corinthians, it's about what would you do? How would you act if God had called one people to himself made up of both Jews and Gentiles and was forming them into a generous community who loved and cared for one another. What would you do if that was the case? That's exactly what has happened. And so the Corinthians must act as though that were true because it is true. So Paul does not tell the Corinthians, hey, you need to contribute to this because God has said you need to contribute to this. He says, I know that Christ is at work among you and that he is making you a new people. So I'm confident that in light of that, you will live into the identity that God has given to you. Now, this is not the only place that this idea shows up in Paul's writings. There's a number of examples that we could turn to, but think with me for a moment about the story of Philemon and Paul's little letter to him. We uh, went through this book briefly uh, a number of months ago now in just a short little, little series, but think back to me, uh, with me to that for a moment. Paul writes this letter, to a wealthy man named Philemon who's dealing with a slave that has run away from 
his, his house. And Paul sends this person with this letter back to Philemon, asking Philemon to receive him back into his house as a brother. Now, this is a very, very difficult thing to do for a number of reasons that would be related to the, the cultural context around this time. But look at what Paul says to Philemon towards the end of that letter. He says, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Now, this is a completely different context. It's written to an individual rather than a church. It's not about money at all. That's not the primary focus. Yet it's clear that Paul is still thinking in these terms. This is a difficult thing that he's asking Philemon to do. But Paul says, I, I know that God has renewed your mind. I know that, that God has made you a new creation. And so I'm confident in light of that that you'll do even more than the right thing in this, in this circumstance. So Paul expresses his, his confidence in the Philippians in light of what God is doing in their midst in that, in that church. That's the first thing that he does. The second thing he does is share with them the testimony of another church. You can look back at verse 2 with me of chapter 9. Paul says, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter. We mentioned this last week as well because it appeared in the passage that we read for that week. Paul boasts about what God is doing in each church to the other one. At the beginning of chapter 8, we saw Paul tell the Corinthian church about God's grace to the church in Macedonia and how they responded to the collection with enthusiasm and excitement when Paul was there. Now Paul explains to the Corinthians that while he was in Macedonia, he was telling that church, hey, once the collection goes through your group of churches up here and moves south into Corinth, all of those churches have been ready to jump in on this project for a year now. They're just excited about it as you are. So he's told the Macedonians that when this party arrives to, Ica uh, to Achaia, which would be a region that, that Corinth would be found in, that church will be just as ready for the project as they are. And he even adds more on top of that in verse 4. He says there, if the Corinthians are not ready when the group from Macedonia arrives, everyone is going to be humiliated. The Corinthians would be humiliated for not following through on their promise to participate in the project, and Paul and his team would be humiliated for being so confident in them. So Paul has a lot riding on the Corinthians here, but we have to remember that Paul has been there multiple times, and he's seen what God is doing among them. Now, it's not the case that it's always been smooth or easy for this church in, in Corinth. But Paul knows that God has brought them into the kingdom of Jesus, and he knows that in this particular situation that they will, uh, they will come through and, and live into that identity that we were discussing earlier. Now, it's clear also from this passage that Paul's reason for boasting about one church to the other is uh, not simply just to kind of turn up the heat on them, and to manipulate them into contributing in some way. We've already said that Paul's careful to actually not do that, and he wants the Corinthians to know that he's not doing that. But the reason that Paul does this is found at the end of verse 2. At the end of verse 2, he says that the zeal 
of the Corinthians has stirred up most of the Macedonians. So Paul is using God's activity in one church to encourage the other church. The writer of Hebrews talks about followers of Jesus considering how they might spur one another on toward love and toward good works. And I think Paul has a, a similar idea in his, in his mind here. God has created his people to live together in community. And the last thing that Paul wants is Christians, or even churches for that matter, to live in isolation from one another. We need to be involved in one another's lives. And as a church also, we need to be aware of what God is doing in the broader world as well. We can often receive encouragement and receive inspiration from the testimony of others. And I think, I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's sharing the stories of one church with other churches in order to uh, encourage them to keep pressing on in their, their walk with Jesus. So the first thing Paul does is express his confidence in the Corinthians. The second thing that he does is share the testimony of one church with another. And the third thing he now does is to emphasize the willingness of this contribution. Here's what Paul says in verse 5. He says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. Remember, what is central to Paul here, think back to last week with me, what is central is the gospel fellowship that the Jewish and Gentile Christians share. That's what this gift represents for Paul. So if he begs the Corinthians to contribute or tries to kind of force this on them in some way, that does not testify to their love for Christ and their love for one another. That testifies to their reluctance to share with one another in this way. That's not what Paul is after. He talks more about this at the end of chapter 9, and we'll, we'll read that for next week. But it's more important to note here that Paul does not give the church any sort of, of target amount for either the church or the individuals. That's not, that's not what's important. He just says that the gift must be made willingly and not as an exaction. That's another one we can thank the ESV for, exaction. Exaction. This is really a word in the language of the New Testament. It has to do with greed. And so Paul wants them to give out of willingness than out of greed. This is the, the normal word that Paul would use in his list of, of vices when he wants to talk about avoiding, avoiding greed. This is the word that shows up here. So I think we need to think of this as maybe the opposite of, of willingness. So giving while, while maybe uh, being envious or wanting to hold something back in that, in that way. Why would Paul make this comment here? I think he wants to ensure that what is given is given as a genuine blessing to the churches in Jerusalem. This is fascinating because that's exactly what he calls the gift here in verse 5. Most of your English Bible translations probably have the word gift appearing twice in verse 5, but Paul has actually switched words here. He's now using the standard New Testament word for, for blessing. So this financial contribution that the Corinthians have made, uh, if, if it's made out of genuine love, it will not only be a material blessing to a group of, of churches that are struggling and are in need, but it will also be a spiritual blessing to them because it symbolizes 
the fellowship that the two groups share in Christ. So Paul ensures that the gift here is given out of, out of willingness. It's not going to be squeezed out of them by Paul or, or anyone else or not given as though they were expecting something in return. It's simply given out of, out of generosity that finds its source in God's gift of grace to them in Jesus. All right, so where does that leave us with this passage here this morning? There are a number of places that we could go with this, a number of, of things that we could explore and ways that we might apply this to our own, our own lives. Certainly a central theme of this passage is about the generosity of the Corinthians and, and helping those in need. We see that clearly here. We could also talk about Paul focusing on the, the genuineness of the gift and the special emphasis that the Corinthians are not being forced to do anything here. That's also important. We can see that in the text as well. But I just want to close by, by sharing with you one way in which this has been working through my own life this week as I've been, been thinking about this passage and, and praying and studying through it. This is the way that it's kind of resonated with me. The Corinthian church was far from perfect. Reading through 1 Corinthians, it's easy to note all of the ways in which they are a very flawed people. But it's striking to me that Paul is so confident in them because of what God has done among them. Paul really sort of leans into this idea of God having remade those who are new in Christ. In the context of the Corinthian church, that means that this church is now operating and learning to operate by the power of the Spirit and to grow into who God has made them to be. So when this collection opportunity arises, it might be, it might be easy and, and simple, and we might even expect that they would be instructed to participate because it's the, it's the right thing to do or it's what God has, has told them to do. But I think what God uh, has inspired Paul to write here is something more uh, profound. It's a little bit richer than that. His encouragement is, is not contribute because you must. His encouragement is remember who you are. Remember the kind of person that God has made you to be, and then point your life in that direction. Pursue that. It's more about identity than it's about obedience. And it may be actually better to say it's about identity first, and then that will lead to obedience. So if the Corinthians remember what God has done for them in Christ then the generosity toward the churches in Jerusalem will be the most natural thing in the world to them. If they hesitate, if they're maybe hesitating to contribute to this or participate in the project, what they need is not uh, another instruction or to be told what to do in this case. They need to be reminded of who they are and of who uh, God has made them to be. Because if they understand who they are as a people in Christ, that will then shape how they think and shape how they, how they act. And I think that is true of us as well this morning. For next week, we can be reading the rest of chapter 9, and we'll look forward at that time to um, continuing our series through uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians. With that being said, let's go ahead and stand together, and we'll close our time together in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you once again for this opportunity to be together, and we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the way that you have 
grabbed us out of the kingdom of darkness and have, have transported us into the kingdom of Jesus. We're grateful to be found together as one church family in Christ this morning. We ask that as we continue to uh, seek the ways in which we can uh, live more faithfully into the identity that you've given to us, that we are your people and we, uh, we share fellowship with one another and we, we live as a testimony to the world of what you've done in Jesus uh, we ask for your wisdom and your help and your power by the Spirit because we know that we're not uh, able to do that fully on our own. So we lean on you and declare our uh, dependence on you this morning. Bless now our fellowship and continued uh, time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.